1: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. Hands in the air for both of your co hosts today, one of whom is me. My name is Taylor Rockwell. The other just punched his mic. It is freaking out a little bit. It's
2: Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Tay Tay. My excitement levels are so high at doing listen to questions today that I just pretty much <laughs> upended my laptop and destroyed my microphone. But I hope you can hear me, okay? I've done that once before where I think I. In my enthusiasm, it was years ago, like I
1: knocked over an entire full cup of coffee onto my then brand new laptop, which was no longer oh. brand new nor functioning. It was fun times. Enthusiasm can, uh, can be problematic on occasion. Did you
2: have to take it to some geniuses to inspect?
1: Uh, I think I know I took it to uh, a person who branded themselves a genius and was definitely going to fix the whole thing. And then they fixed parts of it and it intermittently worked for another year until I bought a new one. That's my long-winded way of saying no, I did not take it where I was supposed to. Uh, and I suffered the consequences for it.
2: So the moral of the story is don't get too excited when podcasting, don't drink coffee, and don't buy expensive laptops. Got it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. If you've learned nothing else, if you learn nothing else on today's show, just memorize that. I was going to (laughs) introduce you uh, as a man who has strong opinions about pancakes, waffles, chicken, and non-cow milk. Uh, Which of those do you have the strongest opinion about, the strongest feeling towards pancakes, waffles, chicken, non-cow milk?
2: Oh, they, they are. That is a quadrant of uh, a, a quadruple threat of of things I like, actually, or don't like. No, I'll start again. <laughs> Cow milk, I don't like very much anymore because I've stopped drinking it. I love chicken a lot, and chip, I was having a debate on Twitter. I think is what you uh, mm-hmm. you're alluding to about pancakes or waffles. I was always a pancake guy growing up, but um, waffles in the UK generally refers to potato waffles, like those square. Well, they're kind of like normal waffles, but they're like square and you have them savory. You have them for your dinner. Um, what? But over here, they're like a sweet thing and they're made from basically the same batter as pancakes. And I prefer American style waffles to American style pancakes. That's another thing. In the UK, pancakes are different. They're more like crepes. What? Get, yeah. get it
1: together, England. Enough with your... <laughs> I'm Sure, you all probably had it first, but still. Enough with your sort of things that are just the same, but not quite the same. I don't like it, Ryan. I don't like it, but I do like you. Uh, And I do like answering answering Lister questions with you. We have many to get to today. We'll see how long this show goes. Uh, Sometime I'm going to guess somewhere between 45 minutes and seven hours. That's roughly my guess for the
2: timeline. That sounds good. Uh, Maybe I'll take a bathroom break at hour four, but uh, otherwise I'm good to go. Perfect. All right. Uh, we'll see if we are shorter than
1: the Justice League Zack Snyder cut, which I think was four hours last I, I heard. We'll see what happens there. But let's get straight to the questions, Ryan. First one comes from Jackie Choi. To ease how awful and scary this past week has been. Uh, this was obviously written last week. Uh, my question is this. What are the soccer moments you return to for guaranteed serotonin? Uh, Jackie lists a few of, of hers. Lucas Moore's, uh, last goal versus Ajax. The Algeria goal. Oh, it's a good one. One. That mm. Wombak header, also a good one. Cosmic Motis saved to put Ludigrettes into the Champions League. I don't know anything about that one, but I'm glad that Jackie appreciates that. Ryan, what moments do you appreciate when you need to feel good about the world?
2: Um, I've got a few, and a few of them... Re- uh... Hark back to the 90s, because as I always say, soccer peaked in the 90s, probably because of my age. The Premier League was the best in the 90s. Everything was the best in the 90s. So um, (laughs) I'm probably alienating many young people by saying that. But uh, To talk about more recent serotonin moments, I think the Aguero goal for me is a big one um the Aguero goal for Manchester City when they won the league I'm not a Manchester City fan by any means but as a neutral fan that watches the Premier League I can still remember the specific moment of sitting on my couch in my old apartment watching that game and actually standing up and sort of screaming when that goal went in and once again I'm not a Man City fan and I usually uh go for the underdog in these situations and Manchester City they're not an underdog anymore not never really were perhaps but uh (laughs) that one sort of brings me joy um I think, Who's the commentator but, for that one? Uh, it was Martin Tyler with uh, Aguero. Aguero, That's, it's a good one. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Martin even now, liking Man City very much. Yeah, he's becoming under a lot of criticism lately, and you'll notice that on Twitter for uh, being a bit pro Manchester United these days and sort of hmm. uh, getting, you know, b- being. Maybe past his prime, which I don't think is fair because he's, he's awesome and he's one of the nicest people ever as well. I had the pleasure of interviewing him a few years ago. That's another topic altogether. I'll get back to my two key serotonin moments that I go back to again and again, Tay First one, is from the 1996-97 season the greatest season of all time we all agree on that right no need to take any further questions on that very good this was when my team Wimbledon finished eighth in the Premier League we got to both cup semi-finals FA Cup and League Cup just a joyous time a really joyous squad and it was my first trip to Old Trafford Uh, it was the fourth round of the FA Cup so it would have been late January February I suppose um and we are my team Wimbledon 1-0 down to Manchester United Eric Cantona is on the field he gets booked for diving at Old Trafford which is absolutely unheard of because no Manchester United player got booked for diving on their own field at that kind of time uh and we get an equalizer in the 89th minute from the head of Mr Robbie Earl who remains my hero to this day Uh, and I've spoken to Mr Earl about this and bored him and probably embarrassed him reliving that day and that moment and how exhilarating it was for that equalised to go in. My team, Wimbledon, a tiny, tiny, tiny team from South London, equalising and taking an, uh, FA Cup and League a Championship holders, Manchester United, to a replay at the home of AFC Richmond, a.k.a. Silhurst Park. And then in the replay, we beat Manchester United 1-0. And it was another glorious evening, my favourite evening of watching soccer live. Uh, just a wonderful, wonderful evening. The other serotonin moment, and I know I've been talking for a while, I apologise, is one from th- about six months before that, Euro 96. Um, England against Holland in the group stage. This was when England uh, beat the Netherlands 4-1. It was a third group match of the tournament. I think it was a Thursday night. It was like a really balmy summer evening. This was against Gus Hiddink's Netherlands. Uh and so much I watched it again last night just uh when I was because I knew I was going to talk about it and I just got the got the fizz watching the clip on YouTube Taylor the old Wembley Stadium I love the old Wembley Stadium that just brings back some wonderful memories looking at all the 90s fashion in the crowds like the the baggy t-shirts and the and the crazy patterns everyone's wearing and the kits as well um you know everything's wonderful about this game um my, one of my heroes, Paul Gascoigne, whom you can hear more about on an episode, the most recent episode of Soccer 101. He had a brilliant game in this in, on that evening. And uh, the third goal, the 3-0 goal, was Paul Gascoigne breaking into the box. He makes a lateral pass to Teddy Sheringham, who's completely free in space. You expect him to shoot. He doesn't. He makes this most unselfish moment of passing to Alan Shearer, who blasts in at 200 miles an hour. And that a moment is like the, the most unselfish moment I've ever seen on a field. And I recommend if you haven't seen that goal, check it out on YouTube. It's wonderful stuff. And Sheringham gets the fourth goal. He's kind of rewarded. He's vindicated for making that pass for the assist instead and, you know, everything about that evening is just really special for me. Everything about that summer as well. Uh, the Netherlands had a player called de Kock. That's fun. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a nice part of it as well. Uh, it was, yeah, as I said, it was good hitting oh, the team. Oh, my am child. Uh, Danny, Danny Blint, uh, David Blint's uh, dad, I believe, gave up the penalty, which uh, Alan Shearer converted for the first goal as well. But I think it was just, I, I'm sort of facetiously saying that the 90s was the best time in soccer. But it, I was 12 years old when Euro 96 happened. And I think this was kind of my awakening and real discovering of my passion for the game and kind of that's why I go back to it it's a very hazy rose tinted glasses memory for me that kind of summer and sort of the months that followed when I was attending Premier League soccer games regularly as well.
1: That's really interesting to hear you say that about 96, because I guess we're both 84 or thereabouts. Uh, I had the same experience in the 90s. It was not that tournament. It was the one after that. It was the 98 World Cup, which is one of mine as well. I think for the same reason, we didn't have like as much soccer coverage at that time over here. Uh, so like, it's a weird blending of memories, because I'm sure some of it is watching it live and Some of those big moments being watched live, but it was also the first like soccer videotape I think I I owned was every goal from the 98 World Cup, which I watched probably 40 times. And I can still remember random moments uh, like from that, like uh, beaten by uh, beaten by Norway. There was about Brazil. A uh, Lack of confidence, that individual brilliance like fought to overcome or something like that. Like it was like those types of lines that made it really interesting. But it was Tori Andre Flo scoring for Norway. It was Beckham versus Diego oh, yeah. Simeone. It was that Dennis Bergkamp goal, which if you ever hear the Dutch commentator screaming Dennis Bergkamp 400 times, it was about that one. U.S. less impressive. I love Zinedine Zidane. That's a great tournament for him. He gets his first red card in a World Cup. Uh, he's one of, what, two players, I think, to get uh, red cards in different World Cups. So well done, Zizou. But that World Cup is so – I just remember the personalities, the jerseys, the footwear. It was all like the Nike Mercurials coming out and Ronaldo had his own shoe. And it was four years before the triangle Head happened. And I just remember being very into that tournament. Uh, and it, it was the thing that sort of launched me into wanting to watch goals, wanted to find little goal highlights and finding them where I could online and things like
2: that. So yeah. I have a, a same affinity for for the 90s for that reason. I think, yeah, I totally agree with that. And that Bergkamp goal was against Argentina, wasn't it? I think it was in Marseille. And I think I wore out the VHS tape I had Mm -hmm. recorded of that. It was just spectacular. I watched it again and again and again. And I believe that tournament, if I'm not mistaken, was when Nike did the Brazilian soccer team in the airport commercial i, th- very yeah, I think yeah it was that did one. they play that in the u.s oh yeah
1: that was that was this because i think that was the first one i can't remember it because there there were a couple different ones right with with that brazil team or various brazil teams doing similar things like in the locker room i think that was before 2006 maybe or maybe 2002 mm. but yeah the airport one is just uh chef's kiss of perfection when it comes to nike soccer advertisements
2: yeah, it was brilliant, and he had Eric Cantona sort of sitting on the plane reading his paper and looking oh, out and watching yeah. them play in that, oh, wonderful, wonderful uh, I commercial. forgot. I forgot that he was weirdly like the Nick Fury
1: of those, where he would just like show up <laughs> for like one little scene, and it was like, oh, he's in this one too. It's a weird Brazil soccer extended universe, I guess, featuring yeah. Eric Cantona, who I guess it culminates in him hosting the cage competition. That's really the, That's uh, right. the end-all-be-all of
2: Nike ads. I do so and watch his, that his, one when his, it comes uh, to... His Nike ad fame started, of course, with uh, popping his collar and saying au revoir as he oh, shoots the penalty right. through the stomach of the devil, which I still maintain to this day. Why didn't you put it in the top right, Eric? You went straight for the keeper. Uh, yes, granted, it, it, the ball yeah. was so powerful it went through the devil. But, uh, you know, you could you could have placed it better.
1: Is it Maldini who starts the turnaround in that game where they're playing like the forces of evil? I think they're getting destroyed and then somebody has a slide tackle that's brilliant. And though Maldini, not known for slide tackling, I think it's him who starts the the sequence that leads to Au Revoir. I love right. that. God, that adds so good too. I could never find it in... English. So there, I just I remember it was like, uh, like, <laughs> like I just remember like weird noises that I was like, Why I don't know what this that? is. I think it was like Italian, but said from the devil. I don't really know what was happening. <laughs> uh, if you haven't seen these ads, they don't make a lot of sense when we describe them. Just know that they're great. So I love that one. Uh, then I obviously love 1999, the Champions League final. Uh mm. there is a great video that used to exist it may have been pulled but it was sort of the story of that game of uh, Manchester United's comeback and win scored by Sigarose and Coldplay which Oh, not yeah. always my favorite of bands, but uh, it's, a, it's a great video and it always, like, I think it's black and white and then it goes to color when Soul Shire scores the winner. And it's just wonderful. It's a very, very happy thing. And <laughs> echoing what Jackie said, the Donovan goal and then the clip of everybody celebrating all the various celebrations around the country. I, I don't think I've ever watched that and not teared up. It gets me every single time just seeing, like, everybody caring that much. And I think to the point of Jackie's question at a time when maybe things feel less, you like, less uh broken than they did maybe a week ago it's still just nice to remember that soccer can be a little bit of that sort of unifying thing where you can come together to talk about fun things and yell at a screen and drink some beers and hopefully your team wins and if they don't then you drink a few more beers
2: now that's interesting you mentioned about tearing up because when i was thinking about this question and the release of serotonin i was thinking about what makes me happy and smile Mm, but a a lot of my best my best and favorite soccer memories are the ones that make me well up and feel emotional it's, it's thinking about Sir Bobby Robson. It's thinking about England's World Cup heartaches. It's thinking about when uh, my team were relegated from the Premier League. Very sad, but it's still one of the most memorable things. And it's that melancholy, I think, is just, just as memorable as the, as the happy points in many ways. See, I think that's a really good distinction to draw because you're right that the ones that, like, give me
1: the strangest weird happiness are the ones that, like, happen to rivals. And they're not even big moments. Like, the one that I think still... I enjoyed watching the highlights of and will sometimes watch when win. I think it was Newcastle come back from 4-0 down to draw 4-4 with Arsenal. And it's like Shaq Tiote scores a screamer. And just that it was, I think, Arsenal went up 4-0 and then Newcastle pulled it back. And all the Arsenal fans were like, oh, this is it. We're the best team in the world. We're going to win everything. So those moments weirdly also make me happy. But you're right. The moments I'm talking about make me like emotional, but still happy enough that they, uh, they qualify. So I'm going to include that as well.
2: To quote Casey Musgraves, "You can be happy and sad at the same time."
1: <laughs> always, always a good thing to quote.
2: Uh, the last thing that's kind of weird as a Man United fan,
1: I I do enjoy. You'll never walk alone. I have the record, like I have the forty five myself. I think it is a very like, in terms of fan traditions and ways to start a game, that is near the top, if not the top. Like I think it's just an amazing thing, even as a a, a not Liverpool liker or. A Liverpool not like her there we go Uh like it's, it's still I will still watch videos of it because it is that just sort of like you watching everybody be on the same page and knowing that it like matters to the fans and that connects them to the players and the players yeah. are able to kind of take it in like I think it's a really nice like representation of the importance of fans to soccer at a time when obviously we don't have many fans in soccer so There are those moments as well that I think, though I don't have a personal connection to them, they still stand out for being sort of incredible things that happen.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And as you say, it's a reminder. It hammers home that this is a community sport and it is amazing Mm -hmm. when people come together. That's why World Cups are so amazing, when everybody in the world is watching this same thing. And when you see a full stadium, it's amazing. And when they're all in unison, it's amazing. And I think uh, on a recent podcast, a a different podcast, Nikki Bandini, uh, she said some words along the lines of, at the moment, it can feel like a business doing business with another business, yep. soccer, without fans. So it, it is an important reminder of how how crucial fans are to this whole endeavor that we're talking about here.
1: I'm really happy you 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 brought that point up because it does remind me. One of the videos I think I've watched the most when it comes to soccer is the... Ireland fans, and I think Euro 2012 it was, Ireland versus Spain, where they basically take over the entire stadium to sing uh, Fields of Athenry. If you've never seen that, like I think it's the one that Sergio Ramos said he stopped playing to just sort of look around and be like, what is happening? Because it was just the entire <laughs> stadium singing this song over and over and over again. That is another great moment that kind of, I think, brings brings out the importance of fans. So that that's it for me. I think I've gone long. We've sort of gone long on this question. Ryan, anything else you wanted to add on this one? I could do another hour or so, but we should probably move on. (laughs) We probably should. We've got more questions to come, including another one from Jackie. But first, let's take a moment to hear from today's sponsors.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more.
1: And we're back with another question from Jackie Choi. Jackie asks, or says rather, I would like to entertain Paul and Sam's joke about Messi at Miami. Uh, Is this inter-Miami team with Messi added guaranteed a supporter shield or MLS Cup and or MLS Cup? Can you think of any challenges he might have? How would a move to Miami affect his international career? How say you, Ryan?
2: I got some thoughts on this, Teite. Uh, firstly, Messi under Phil Neville. Wow, that sounds like something I would. I, I kind of want to see, <laughs> just out of the sheer curiosity yeah. of it. Um, I'll tell you what it guarantees. If Messi, if we are to, uh, if we are to play this scenario, it guarantees uh, ticket sales. Mm-hmm. It guarantees shirt sales. It yep. guarantees photo opportunities. It guarantees a crazy amount of TV coverage. It guarantees being on the ESPN top ten more often than not for MLS. I don't think it guarantees titles however i agree um i think we can use the elder dodge that one player does not make a team uh a, or one player does not a team make not if you're going to get all uh yoda about it <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah okay. dude i agree with you i would say I more think- but i agree I think it's, uh, and you can argue that there are instances in which one player does make a team. And you think of uh, Ronaldo at the most recent Euros, Euro 2016, where he basically dragged a reasonably average Portugal over the line, even though he didn't even play in the final, basically by taking over as coach in that tournament. Um, whereas Messi, that. when we've seen him in a similar circumstance, say at the World Cup in 2014, getting into the final, doesn't have the st- maybe I'm being harsh, but the strength of character to pull a team over the line that someone like Ronaldo would have. So I'd argue that Messi himself is not the, the one-man difference maker in a team. He's better when he's got other talent around him. I don't think he could make a bad team and raise them higher. Not, I'm not calling into Miami a bad team, but you get my point. I think I do. that he's not he's not the one-man difference maker.
1: He doesn't seem to have, like, like, like I'm sure there are fans of Barcelona and Lionel Messi who will take issue or umbrage with what you're saying. And I would like, I know exactly what you mean, which is that there's that, like, Michael Jordan, I would say Cristiano Ronaldo is in that category of, like, we are not losing this game. No matter what, I will find find a way to win if it means, like, playing on two torn ACLs and no one ever speaks to me again from this team, we will win this game. And I just, I don't think Messi is that same personality, and I don't even mean that negatively. I just, to your point, I don't think he is sort of a, like, I will, like, shorten my career by a year if it means we're going to win this game. I think he is less of that, like, win-at-all-cost mentality. Maybe that's just me buying into, like, the branding of Lionel Messi, but I I do agree with you that he's not going to, Like, take that uh, approach, and I think with that also then – You kind of have to have that if you're bringing in that marquee player. I do think Cristiano Ronaldo probably does guarantee them a bit more success, as strange as that is. I don't really even like Ronaldo more than Messi or vice versa. But I think that mentality of we're going to win, it's important to me that my brand, that we win MLS Cup the first year I'm here. I think it was the same sort of approach Zlatan had. And I think that you kind of have to have that if you're bringing in that marquee name. It can't just be for the jersey sales. It's got to be to also make sure everybody else is playing the way they need to play.
2: Yeah, I think it's rather than, I think that maybe Karl Anker said this in a recent podcast, rather than raising the ceiling, you want to raise the floor of a team, if that makes sense. yeah, so Everybody mm-hmm. feels better. So, uh, and, and if you look at precedent within U.S. soccer as well, I looked at Pele when he came to New York Cosmos. He had two and a half seasons there, uh, nearly three full seasons. Uh, didn't win anything until the third season. So you're not guaranteed instant results, even if you get a super mega star coming into your team as well. And if we're going to talk, tete about the international aspect, I don't think Messi cares. Nope. I really. It might, I, I don't think it would affect it because he's going to get selected for Argentina if yep. he's fit, regardless. And I don't think he cares either way. He'll be what thirty-four by the time the twenty-two World Cup came around. So if we were to entertain him being a, uh being in MLS for this coming season or even the next season, I st- I still think he 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 could play. Yeah. Um, he'd, he'd be an elder statesman of sorts in that Argentina team. And you could talk about the Copa America for this summer as well because that was postponed from last summer for this summer, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I'd, yeah, my answer to that is it doesn't affect his international career. He's still very much... He, I don't think Messi's going to be forgotten about if he goes to Less, I suppose is the point.
1: Uh, I have essentially the exact same answer. I just had, he's still Messi. And so I yeah. think if he wants to play for the national team, he's going to be played. It's why I've really enjoyed listener questions, because this is a thing I hadn't really thought about. We think of Messi at club level. When we talk about him at, at national team level, it's usually why can't they win? Is he gonna win any sort of tournament? How do we make Argentina better? Who's the right person to to coach them? I don't think about what happens as Messi gets older, because he's such a huge name. Like it's not dissimilar from having Pele in your team and it being nineteen seventy-two or whatever. And it's like, is he or nineteen seventy eight? Like, is he still well, we gotta call him in. We gotta get him in. Like you you it, It's really difficult when you have this big of a name to move on from them, and it requires a manager willing to do that at the right time. And so I think even if he's playing for, let's say he moves to Inter-Miami and they're just outright bad, I don't think that would be the case. Uh, But I think he still is getting called into the national team, and I think he doesn't really let that factor into his decision-making. So I agree with you on all of those fronts. I have a question for you, though, about, uh, about all this, which is, like, I think of Lionel Messi as an amazing player who can be difficult to coach because especially like Barca fans are, are, seem to be more okay with it. Whenever I, I, I bring up the walking or the kind of lack of effort, usually I'm hit with like, he's always done that. That's how he plays, which fine, if that's the way you want to go. But like, Can you build a team around that if you're not used to it? I think it's a thing we've seen Barcelona managers struggle with of late, is how do you incorporate him, get the best out of him, while still getting the best out of a team? I'm sure Inter-Miami would be built around him, and everybody would be happy to play. I think players would take pay cuts to, to play for that team, and to be able to say they played with Lionel Messi. But getting a functional team built around a player who is bigger than life, but also difficult to manage in terms of what he brings and how he plays... Like it's an interesting thought experiment. For like, do you think like an MLS manager builds a team around him, or do they sort of say like, whatever you're messy, you figure it out. We'll we'll just do whatever you want.
2: I don't think you'd have a choice but to build a team around him. Surely, for, right. there'll be there'll be financial uh, reasons for for doing so. And I think you're 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 on the on the money there with the, t- talking about being a difficult player to manage. The apocryphal tale about him in the Barcelona dressing room with Pep Guardiola and Guardiola saying, you're not allowed carbonated beverages, you're not allowed to drink Coke or whatever. And Messi going and grabbing a Pepsi and sort of opening it in front of him and drinking it six inches from his face. Uh, That's probably exaggerated, but the point being is like, uh, I'm the captain now is the the Messi attitude for, for those kind of things. <laughs> I mean, maybe Phil Neville would give him that opportunity. I do think
1: that's it's also worth talking about that at this point. I think you you joked about it earlier, but I also am not particularly sold on the Phil Neville appointment. Like I I think he can no? be a fine manager. Um I have long held that it's very difficult to go from coaching in the men's game to the women's game and vice versa because it's just they are different Games. And I don't mean that like one is better than the other. I don't mean anything like that. I just mean that there are different calculations you have to do. You have to approach things differently. You can't sort of rely on the same tactics from one to the other and vice versa. I don't know how well it's going to go for Phil Neville. I think he's going to have a lot on his hands and try be trying to figure out a lot on the fly. Adding little Messi into that is is definitely an interesting thing. And I think that would be a challenge uh, to Jackie's question that would have to be faced. And then there's just the rigors of MLS. It's known as being a physical league with a demanding schedule and a demanding travel schedule specifically. I don't know the last time Messi flew commercial, but he would have to fly at least a few of those, uh, if he were playing for Miami and, and like j- just those wrinkles, those little like, uh, issues that sometimes can trip a player up or can seem a little bit weird. I think some of that would be difficult. I do think he probably gets more calls because referees are going to know it's messy and know that he probably gets targeted a little bit and maybe he gets more generous calls than he would right now that's another way i think it could be a little bit different for him but i think overall he'd be just fine
2: if he does go to mls are we agreed that into miami would be one of the favorite places he would end up
1: yes it's it's still strange to me that they're in fort lauderdale like and i know that's probably how it's going to be for a long time and it is what it is i would say definitely if they were like downtown miami like he has that lifestyle and and everything else that comes with it but yeah I think Miami it's always Miami New York and Los Angeles right those are always kind of like the the big ones when we think of where big name designated players might go I would have said the same thing about Ronaldo though so maybe we get the Messi Ronaldo super team in Florida let's make that happen
2: oh yeah I was just thinking it's yeah it seems culturally the most appropriate place for him I mean, I don't believe he speaks English uh, unless I'm mistaken so that might I mean, that might factor into the he
1: speaks it enough for Pepsi commercials I think although <laughs> I'm not even sure he speaks in that Carly Lloyd commercial so maybe not never mind uh, Let's he can, he can grunt in English how about that <laughs> that he can do that he can certainly do let's move on to another MLS uh, question of sorts it comes from Kenneth Seiden should MLS consider pushing for in-game slash split-screen commercials like you see in Liga Amakis uh, games to increase the value of their TV deals or would fans revolt against this
2: no they shouldn't yes they would yep that's, that's my correct. answer basically <laughs> uh, i think in-game, the in-game sp- split screen thing it does sound like the worst thing ever it sounds like the uh the the, the, the beginning of the collapse of western civilization frankly i don't i don't want it and it's 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 interesting because when you look at mls and the kind of things they've tried commercially you look at the mls uh the mls's back tournament mm-hmm. and i i as In my position working for an MLS team last summer, I was sort of sat in on a lot of marketing calls and heard the processes and what they were going through and sort of the innovations they were going to try. And I quite admire them for it. You know, we're talking about the virtual advertisements around the field and more specifically putting the uh, Adidas logo on the center of the field, Mm -hmm. which is something that's not really been done before to my knowledge, or maybe it's been done in other markets, but I'm not aware. But I think that's the kind of thing they'll do where it doesn't interfere too much with the spectacle of the play. But going going split screen, not for me. Not for me.
1: Yeah I, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you on all accounts. And
2: I would say with that in
1: mind that like MLS is definitely pretty willing to try the next thing. Like I think of VAR. I think of uh, having the goalkeeper mic'd up during all-star games, different camera mm. angles. I think they are happy to play around and, and just see different ideas and see what works and what doesn't. But I think the the split-screen ad thing would be a step too far. Like, I think it's probably a thing they've considered because they need to make more money, especially in COVID times. But it would be an instant, like, what are we doing? This is confusing. Why is this happening? Where is the audio going? I don't like this. I think you're right, Ryan, that, like, what I I envision more is, like, oh, this is – This corner is being taken from the Adidas section. This corner is being taken from the Continental Tire section. Like I could see the field being divided up into advertisers and like the, oh, he'll be taking this, like this penalty from the Pizza Hut penalty spots. Like I can see sponsored locations on the field and things like that coming into play before we get the split screen. Maybe that's just wishful thinking, but that's where I am with it.
2: If you were to come back at us and argue that, but hey, they do it in Mexico. I'm going to give you a toilet analogy if you'll allow me. Oh, boy. In the US, when you go into a public bathroom, mm-hmm. and you see the bathroom stall, there's like an inch gap in the doors. But you can make eye contact with someone while they are in the stall. Mm-hmm. If you went to another country, say the UK, and said, hey, we're doing this from now on, it would be beyond the pale. They'd be like, why are there gaps in the toilet door? This is very bizarre. I don't <laughs> want to make eye contact with someone while they're sitting down in there. And I think it's kind of the same here. Yes, it's it's something that's done in Mexico. It doesn't mean it's going to be introduced uh, happily in another in another territory.
1: Well said, sir. I, this will come as no surprise, but the the best public toilet setup I've ever experienced is Germany, where it's like doors that go from the ceiling to the floor. You have your own little spaces. It's very nice. Uh, yeah, the United States with the gap and everything's always wet. I don't know about that one. So yeah, maybe we don't need to bring that one in. maybe we don't need to bring in... Uh, split screen and I do love when they have random things like I think the Smurfs movie was sponsoring the cards that were given out so in one Liga and Mechies game you had like Papa Smurf giving a yellow card as the referee was giving a yellow card maybe you could just throw some of that in the front but for the most part I think leave things as they are and uh, experiment elsewhere that's that's yeah. my takeaway on that one uh, we do have another question from Kenneth unless you have more to say about MLS and split, sc- split screens
2: I don't would, would you like me to introduce Kenneth's second question sure Kenneth says, and by the way, what's the frequency, Kenneth? Never gets old. How are you doing? When a team knows their opponent is poor at offensive set pieces, does that change their defensive approach in open play? Would fouling and giving up corners be an active strategy? I have thoughts, tete. This floor is yours first.
1: I think I have thoughts as well, and I will answer it as succinctly as you answered the last one. No, I don't think so. <laughs> is that enough? My note is no question mark. Okay. Yep. That's, I don't think so. It was the same. Yeah, I'm glad we're on the same page. Um, I mean, so I, I guess like where this would be coming from, right, is that if you know they're not going to score on corners, but they're much more deadly from open play, I can see the idea of like conceding corners more readily. But I guess even then it's like, does that mean you're just putting it out of play as soon as you win the ball? Like it's a hard thing to shepherd a team into like earning corners as opposed to just stopping the play by setting yourself up that way, so that's where I, I like run into a little bit of confusion here, Ryan. What about you?
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's never. I don't think it would ever be an active strategy to to be okay with giving up corners because it makes no sense. You at the very least you try and clear it to the touchline to to get a throw, and I mean that's always going to be better than a corner unless you're playing Rory DeLapp and Stoke, and uh, um, I I don't, I don't think he's playing anymore. <laughs> so, but it's 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 interesting because there are some defensive strategies that rely on fouling. Uh, but not necessarily for set pieces. If you look at, the, say, Pep Guardiola with, uh, with his style with having Sergio Busquets and t- players like Fernandinho deliberately yep. you know, fouling to, 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 uh, to, to break up play, but they're not going to do it uh, as a means to giving the opponent a set piece. They're going to do it further up the field. You can look at Athletic Club, by the way. They do fouls all over the field, as we saw at the last this mm-hmm. weekend. But it's not, it's not with the aim of saying, well, they're weak on offensive set pieces. Uh, I think it's a very dangerous game to play uh i yeah. mean would you would you risk giving up a penalty for the sake of a dead ball or you know uh, that yeah. kind of thing uh that's... a couple
1: of things a couple of things there number 1 i was trying to figure out why rory delap was in my head and it's because his son now plays for man city that's the yeah. delap i
2: was like is he still i know
1: there's a delap around but and yes. i think
2: his son's like 30 or something and i'm just kidding he's, he's <laughs> i think he's a teenager but it's depressing that uh, rory delap is in his 40s
1: <laughs> and yeah i think you you get to like The heart of it for me, which is that, yeah, you do have that professional foul. You do have that thing where, like, nope, they're going to get in on goal, so we're going to foul them here. But that is more of a tactic of we're denying them shooting opportunities from open play, from obvious goal-scoring chances, from obvious goal-scoring positions. I Like, it would be... A level of gamesmanship that I could only assume would come from a Mourinho team. of like, And I could see it being, like, they are very bad at set pieces from this area, so if you are going to foul them, like, foul them here and not there. Like, I, I can see that level of nuance to it, but in terms of it being a, like, dedicated strategy, it, it's just a harder thing to prepare for aside from, yeah, foul them if they're in a good position because... Set piece is probably going to hit the wall or go over the goal or the corner is going to be intercepted. So we're not as worried about that because I also think that what we know about corners and to some extent set pieces is unless you have somebody like David Beckham, who's going to put them on frame every single time, they're not always the highest scoring uh, chances. I think like one in eight corners. I'm pulling this from uh, soccer by the numbers. I think it was it's like one in eight corners leads to a shot on goal or like a, mm. a shot and of those at one and eight, like one and eight leads to a shot on target. So like you have a very limited chance of scoring off of set pieces anyway.
2: Yeah, corners are a surprisingly low percentage play yeah. when you actually look at the numbers. And we're as excited as fans get about winning them, They are, as I say, yeah.
1: Mourinho has that line of like, I never, when I first moved to England, I never understood why fans applaud corners. It's just another opportunity for a restart. Like, why don't you applaud throw-ins? It's the same thing. And (laughs) it's an interesting uh, approach to take. So, yeah, I think, uh, Kenneth, not to be dismissive of your question, but yes, I think we can say it would not be an active strategy. It would be an interesting one. I wouldn't mind seeing it. It's something I could see Nagelsmann doing as well. Mourinho versus Nagelsmann. Let's just make that happen instead. (laughs) Love it. All right, Uh, Ryan, we still have many questions to get to, but we also have more sponsors today. Let's take a moment to hear from them. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. And now let's take a moment to hear from Richard Rolson. Do you want to ask this one, or shall I ask this one, Mister? It would Bailey?
2: be my pleasure, T. Right. Thank mm-hmm. you, Richard Rolson, for your question. Your first of your questions: What has happened to Sheffield United this season? They are not performing at the levels they did last season. Porqua! I've added in that last bit for Richard, <laughs> but uh, Taylor Borqua. I have five explanations. I oh, will. Oh boy!
1: I will not roll through them all very quickly. I will start with the, the, the two big ones. I think are a bit more general. The first one being that they they played a fairly unique style in the championship and then last season with overlapping or like center backs becoming involved in the attack and using the center backs to build out in that back three. And I think to some extent, when you have a nuanced system and then teams have time to properly game plan for it, you're going to have to evolve it. You're going to have to adapt because otherwise teams can sort of nullify what you're doing and then you run into issues. And I do think teams have figured them out to some extent. They figured out that approach. They know how to deal with it a little bit more. That leads to problems. I also think a lack of atmosphere is a big issue. That if you're Sheffield United and you know you're battling, you know you're going to be defensive, you're going to be backs against the walls against a lot of teams in the Premier League, having that home advantage, having those fans pick you up when you do start to get a, concede a few too many shots or the other team's getting some chances – Having that that home crowd motivate you is such a big thing. And when you don't have it, I think it's really hard to pick yourself back up. If you go one nil down, I think last season, you've got the crowd there to really help you get back into it and maybe get an equalizer. And now, if you go one nil down, Sheffield United, it's been the case this season that pretty quickly you go two nil down instead of fighting back.
2: Yep, completely agree with that. Um, Interesting, though. Actually, I, I don't completely agree with that because okay. I did agree with that. When I first started writing this out last night and thinking about it, my points, my big point was they've been figured out. Mm-hmm. And what I did was I texted a friend of mine, a man called Dan Locke, who is one of the technical staff at Charlotte FC, who is from Sheffield, a big Sheffield United fan. He knows more about soccer than I could ever know in my lifetime. And he's a very impressive man. So I, I texted him saying, we're going to talk about Sheffield United tomorrow. What's the problem? Is it is it just they've been figured out? And his, his point was, not really no okay. the main issue for him is that it's actually mostly been a different team to last year yep. and last year there was a settled 11 you know at its peak riding its momentum and having the fans there not doing you know not too risk averse with their play and it was sort of a perfect storm for them last season and what happened in last summer was they had the opportunity to move on and have some good recruitment got it pretty badly wrong so it's in, uh, it's it's basically having a different team last year Uh, not recruiting very well this summer and also having injuries and particularly to the defense. And it's it's Jack O'Connell who's been missing in the defense. Two games um, all season, yep. Yeah, two games all season. And and Chris Wilder said he was actually a bigger loss for them relatively than Liverpool losing Virgil van Dijk. That's how important he is to that sort of back three of John Egan and and Basham and and him. There uh,
1: There was, to emphasize what you're saying, there was an athletic piece about this topic. And I think it was something like, they win 450 percent more games when he, when Jack O'Connell is in the starting eleven, based on yeah. last season to this season.
2: Yeah, so there you go. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that was that was kind of um, uh, Dan's point that it, it, it's very different in defense and kind of a different team last year. And in terms of recruitment, they have spent sort of nearly 170 million since coming up. It's not that they haven't put their hand in their pocket; just it hasn't been wise where they have placed that money. So p- players like Ollie Burke and uh, and reimbursed uh, coming in not quite mm-hmm. the, the way they should have spent the money and, and, and all of the targets they had um, they didn't quite get they went to other teams so yep. uh, and, and it's surprising because they do have a Saudi owner they do have deep pockets relatively speaking but they just spent badly uh, another thing is Dean Henderson going back to Manchester United by the way being, yep. and Aaron Ramstone not being a very good replacement for him so that's another reason why the defense isn't quite the same and I think you can just look at and if you look at the numbers and I was looking at this last night there's there 's just less intensity in that team there 's fewer ball recoveries going on, and you can put that perhaps on the compressed nature of the schedule, uh, but that you could argue that affects everybody, but I think you can certainly say that 's a contributing factor here when you tie it to the fact that this is a team that probably needs fans more than any other, probably a team that 's more encouraged as you mentioned there Taylor by having a home uh, a home crowd and, and being a bit le- a bit a bit more risk averse in their play as well so there's lots of factors going on here i would say and it's mainly that the team isn't the same as it was last year they didn't do very well this summer they kind of stood still in some ways and yep. they're in big trouble because they are bottom they've got five points they're on course for 10 points if you do the math because we're halfway through the season derby got um 8 wait 08, 08 09 they're famously bad season they got 11 points they're on they're on course for the worst season mm. ever and last season they conceded 39 goals that's the fewest ever for a promoted team they've already conceded 32 this season at the halfway point yikes
1: Yeah. And I think to double down on a lot of the points you made, because I agree with everything you said, there's a really good athletic article by Richard Sutcliffe and Mark Carey uh, focusing specifically on set pieces. That they have now, Sheffield have considered, conceded second most goals from corners and free kicks uh, this season. They were much better. I think they had the fewest conceded uh, from set pieces last season. And a big part of that uh, goes to the injuries you mentioned, Jack O'Connell, Sander Berga being out since December, uh, Ollie McBurney out since December as well. So you lose a lot of height there. You're not winning as many aerial challenges. Those two I mentioned, O'Connell and Berga, I think were far and away their most successful people when it came to aerial duels. Now they're not winning nearly as many. And the other point that you brought up there is the Aaron Ramsdale, like not being Dean Henderson aspect of things, that his his successfully claiming the ball off of set pieces percentage is like drastically lower than Dean Henderson's. And what that means is you're not coming out. He's not collecting. He's not commanding the box. So if you're already conceding corners and now your defense is worried about is the goalkeeper coming? We're not quite sure what we're doing that uncertainty bleeds into things. And I think, so to your point, you don't have some of the people they were there. You don't have the confidence that was there and that kind of unit mentality of everybody knows what they're doing. I think Burnley, when they're at their best, is one of those examples of it. Everybody knows what they're doing. Everybody knows their responsibilities. But as soon as people deviate from that, you run into problems. And I think that's what Sheffield United are definitely experiencing this season.
2: Yeah, definitely. And it's a mixture of bad luck with the injuries and mm-hmm. also deciding their own fate in terms of not recruiting very well yeah. so uh, a little from column a a little from column b
1: lovely let's see how succinctly we answer richard's other question uh why do teams from wales take part in the english football league but not teams from northern ireland how did it come to be that wales joined and other parts of the united kingdom did not
2: very simple taylor we've had less yep. wars against the welsh uh, last <laughs> war with them was in the 1400s we like him a bit more so we let them in that's it end of story <laughs> I thought, given
1: how we have kind of like directly answered some of these, I thought you were going to be serious and I appreciate that
2: you went a different way. <laughs> That's uh, a semi-serious yeah. way of dealing with it because it probably does have some historical relevance. But um, I, I can go with my serious answer if you like, or I'll let, I'll let you uh, let you go first.
1: Well, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's basically just that the League of Wales didn't exist until 1992. Uh, and by then, many, <laughs> like the English League definitely did exist. Uh, I think when it first came into existence... Welsh teams. It's not just Swansea Cardiff. It's what Wrexham, Colwyn Bay, Merthyr Town, and Newport, uh, mm-hmm. all given the opportunity to join the Welsh League, which was mostly amateur and did not offer a European place for winning it. And I think they said, "No thanks. We will stay with the one that allows us to make more money and potentially play in Europe." Um, and then you look at to the to answer sort of the second part of that about like why don't teams from Northern Ireland, for example, uh, did not know until I did the research for this that uh, like the Irish League, Northern Ireland. That's part of the problem, uh, is the second oldest league, I believe, in the world. English would be the first, Ireland second, Scotland third, and the Dutch are in there somewhere as well. But those leagues having existed for as long as they did, there is more sort of a tradition of those leagues existing and players playing in those leagues. And that's why you don't have, say, Scotland uh, joining up. And if you've watched the English game, you know that in some ways the Scottish game was more advanced at different time periods. And so steady on. (laughs) So I think that's a big part of it is just the age of those other leagues versus the age of the Welsh League.
2: Precisely, Taylor. You have put the nail on the head. Oh, uh, really? Cardiff uh, and Swansea were founded in 1920 and 21, respectively. That's back when Thomas Muller started playing for Bayern Munich, I believe. Um, so it's, they've been around quite a long time. And as you say, the Welsh leagues didn't quite exist then. And geographically, it's easier for the Welsh teams to join with the yeah, English leagues gone. than it is for Northern Ireland, being that they have a little bit of water between them. Uh, not hist- Historically, wouldn't have been practical for Northern mm. Ireland teams to uh, join. They're not on the same landmass. Uh, so, that would that would help and i think there would historically be difficulty for those northern irish teams to join with the league of ireland too so that's kind of that's kind of why it is
1: yeah i think when i may be wrong because what northern ireland is 1921 i believe but i think even when that league obviously when that league is established it's all of ireland so then you have more competition there you have more teams competing so i think the the troubles are also part of why you don't have as much kind of crossover there but yes wales easy to walk across that border and uh, and go play. Why not? So there you go. I think we have pretty successfully answered that one, Ryan. How say you?
2: I would say so. Should we move on to them? Um, and also uh, another question with a Welsh uh, leaning on oh, it. Oh yeah, let's do it. Here we go. Kenny Flores asks, now that Jordan Morris is making a lone move to Swansea, I'm not sure at the time of recording if that is official or not, but it's certainly rumoured. Can we give a refresher on what's going on with Swansea for those of us who don't follow them? We want to know how their season's going. Do they have the same players they had since they were in the Premier League? How do they play? Yada, yada, yada. Thank you. I love you all, particularly Ryan, says Kenny.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I mean, hurtful, Kenny, but sure. He didn't Uh, say that.
2: I just added it on because I was trying to fluff myself up. Everyone
1: loves you, Tate. I know, buddy. Uh, let's start with the manager. Let's take that part first. Uh, manager would be Steve Cooper, who... If you don't know much about him, that's correct. You don't know much about him because he's not one of those, oh, he's managed 14 different championship clubs and now he's with Swansea. Uh, His big claim to fame, I would say, would be that he won the U-17 World Cup with England prior to this appointment and had lots of experience with various youth teams, including Liverpool. He's credited with helping Raheem Sterling's development and uh, other Liverpool
2: Academy players. Ryan's waving his hand. I'll add that I interviewed a goalkeeper called Curtis Anderson, who was at Man City, who went to Charlotte Independence. He was the goalkeeper in that World Cup, and he spoke highly of Steve Cooper. Please continue. I will.
1: Uh, and so he has. Uh, he comes in to Swansea. I think last season sticks with a sort of 4-2-3-1 pretty standard. This season has switched to a 3-5-2. Joe and I talked a little bit about this uh, when we discussed Jordan Morris' move and where he fits in with the Swansea team. But with that three five two and some of what they've been doing, they are currently second in the championship, 46 points from 24 games, in the automatic promotion spots, and have been pretty consistent. We We often see with championship teams in that top half of the table, really good starts, and then they trail off a little bit for a while, and then they come back up, or you have teams that trail off at the end. Thus far, Swansea have been pretty consistent in what they've been doing, both tactically and in terms of results. So I think that is part of the calculation here, is that if they continue to do what they're doing, have the success they have been thus far, stands to reason they make it back into the Premier League, either via the playoffs or automatically, as they would right now. So then you're looking at Jordan Morris playing in the Premier League after a season of getting or a half season of getting used to the championship. All of that makes a lot of sense to me.
2: Yep, that, I, I would agree with that too. Um, and I agree with much of what you said there. I have leaned on an expert once again, Please. as I did for my Sheffield United question. I, I was messaging last night a friend of mine on Twitter, Ash, Ashley SCFC, big Swansea fan, and uh, sort of asking about, about the style of play. I'll get to his comments in a minute, but I'll just say that, yeah, this is a Swansea team that was relegated in 2018. They are, as Taylor said, they are second in the league. Norwich is first at the moment. They uh, lost out in the playoffs last season to Brentford, uh, who then lost out to Fulham, if my memory serves me correct, on that one. So they will, they're looking for automatic qualification this time around. It's quite tight at the top of the championship at the moment though in terms of players who you might recognize from the Premier League they've still got Wayne Routledge on the books uh, who was born in the same hospital as me fun fact a few (laughs) months later he's 36 years old Um, Andre Ayu is still Mm. there he's 31 and Carl Norton is uh, still on the books as a right back there, uh, and and Ashley was mentioning to me they have uh, a, a Chelsea player on on the books, Mark Gaye, one of the best defenders in the league, he calls him, and he he says that he could walk into the Chelsea team right now, could uh, mm. Mark Gaye, um, who's I think from the Ivory Coast, uh, who, but I believe has played, um, no, he played in that World Cup as well, he played, he represented England as the under seventeen as well, along with Curtis Anderson, I mentioned there, uh, and in terms of Steve Cooper, yes, you're right, it is his first big gig if you're not going to include an England youth team with that and Ashley my friend here says he's a very good manager and he says that every single player has improved under him especially Con Roberts and Jake Bidwell um adds Ashley they've come on come on leaps and bounds so he's very excited about what the direction this team is heading in he's also excited about uh, the potential of Jordan Morris as well saying uh, Ashley thinks they've missing they're missing a finisher at the moment they're missing sort of someone with the pace that uh, it looks like he could sort of fill that need very much he's looking forward to that if they're gonna make a promotion push and I think he'd be uh, it'll, it'll be good for him to go up with Swansea I think that could yeah. be very exciting for him and it could be very exciting for Swansea an interesting thing I will note Tay is the ownership situation at Swansea now the link with Jordan Morris might be because of the ownership group at Swansea which uh Steve Steve Kaplan and Jason Levine who are the I think they're the Majority owners of DC United as well, aren't they? Uh, They have a majority stake. uh, Their consortium has a majority stake in Swansea City. That's a consortium that you remember had Landon Donovan and Mindy Kaling and all those folk in it. right.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And a year or two ago, uh, Swansea fans were very, very, very anti this group. They were not happy with them coming in. There was kind of this uh, the fans versus the Americans battle. a A huge distrust in this group had come in and there was a point where um, Swansea were ordered to pay a big fine, a six figure fine in compensation, because the American owners came in and sacked a couple of club directors. It was deemed to be unfair uh you know there's 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 been some I'm, I'm not sure how litigious we can get here but some documents have turned up online about maybe the intentions of these american owners i don't want to i don't want to get us in <laughs> i don't want to have to call the fire truck of lawyers in right now Tay-Tay, but there's, there's just, been throw some, alleg- I'll just throw allegedly in front you're fine there you go allegedly correct mm-hmm. there's, there's been some distrust between the fans and their ownership group and also it's still kind of ongoing but um uh, you, you know they're, they're looking at DC United being linked with, like, Meza Ozil, or certainly he was, and they're looking at Swansea having a net profit in something like 80 million in transfers over the last three seasons and yet not the same level of investment going into Swansea so they're Nothing. curious about that and they're hoping that that might uh, increase uh one sort of thing that they note, or that Ashley notes my friend note, notes is um that things with the ownership group improved when Trevor Birch was brought in as chairman that was in 2019 he's kind of credited with turning things around at Swansea very much and um his involvement was really helpful he actually it's a funny story with him in September the most recent September he went and became director of football at Tottenham. He was there for like a minute because he then became EFL chief executive, which is where he is now. So he's kind of very well respected and someone who is credited with getting the ship righted at Swansea. So in conclusion, uh, this is an, a team with American ownership. So this is a team that a, a lot of our listeners will be have a vested interest in, and particularly if Jordan Morris joins. And I, I'll be excited to see them back. I think there's also rumors that he will not be the only
1: American or MLS player that could uh, be getting some consideration from Swansea. We'll see what develops there. In terms of how he fits into the team, uh, as we said, they play like 3-5-2, 3-4-3 sort of thing, uh, which means they tend to want to build through the middle. That's where they've got their numbers. They've got those three central midfielders. They've got the three center backs. Makes sense. Um So then you'll have uh, one of the forwards usually uh, dropping in if you want to create even more of an overload and have four in the middle, or you'll have those forwards spreading wide and making those runs to try to pull center backs out, pull defenders out. And I think seeing it that way, it makes me really excited because that feels like exactly what Jordan Morris is going to do. He can drop in, he can link up play, but I think he'll be very good at making those runs, stretching the defense, pulling defenders out. And then ideally scoring some goals, creating some chances. I think he fits in better than I would have thought. It's a little bit different of a position. It's not a front three or something like that Mm. with a back four. But it is, I think, a situation that will allow him to get minutes quickly and I think he he fits what they need. So it's not just a like, ah oh, yeah, an American, he'll score goals, get him in here. Like, it feels like he's being brought in to do a specific thing and play a specific role. And I, I I am way more excited about this than I thought I would have been when I first heard this news. And I'm very excited to for Jordan Morris to win the Golden Boot in the Premier League next season. Let's make that happen, too.
2: I mean, yeah, I hope he does because he, he, there's a worry he's aged out because he should be Matthew Hopper age if he's going to make, uh, make a success of himself <laughs> over in Europe. But I do hope he does well. I hope he comes over uh, because we know, Taylor, that uh, uh, forwards coming up from the championship have a 100% success record when they reach the Premier League if you take a sample size off Timu Puki, <laughs> Yes, and Timu
1: Puki is still banging them in in the prep Oh, no, they're in the championship. As you said, Fair top enough. of the championship, though. Let's get them on he's back. He's doing well. Uh, Let's talk about a player who's doing very well in the Premier League. Let's talk Wilfred Ndidi. Patrick Delaney asks Wilfred Ndidi, or says, Wilfred Ndidi is really good. Correct. Does he stay at Leicester for much longer? If he moves, what move would suit him
2: and his abilities? Does he stay at Leicester for much longer? I agree that he's really good, by the way, for the first statement. Does he stay at Leicester for much longer? Let's stick with that one. Yeah. That depends on how well Leicester do this season, I Mm -hmm. would argue. If they stay in the Champions League hunt, Yes, if they win the title, which is still possible. Yes. So I think those are the circumstances in which he stays on. If he moves, I think it's if we see the kind of drop that we have seen this Leicester team do uh, in the second half of a season. So that would be the, the situation where he leaves. What kind of move would suit him? Well, hold on. I, let me. I want to. I want to push
1: back on that. Well, not even ooh. push back, but I just want to say, like, I think the thing with Leicester that, like, I go with in this part is that Leicester seemed to have that one big sale, like every season going back to when they win the title. Then it's N'Golo Kante. The season after that, it's Danny Drinkwater, who, lest we forget, did go for a lot of money. Riyad Mahrez, Harry Maguire, Ben Chilwell this past year. So it seems like they always have one big. Outgoing transfers. So it could be Wilfred and Didi. I think the two things there would be number one for what they would want for him based on what they've made for some of those names I mentioned versus what I think the current market would allow for. I think it's not going to be as much. So I think they're not going to get this huge double what like he's worth payday. I think with that in mind, then Lester, the longer they are in the Premier League, the longer they are near the top of the table. The more money they're going to have, the more stable they are, the less they need to sell players. So I think if he does move, I think to answer that first part, does he stay at Leicester for much longer? It's basically, is there a club who wants him enough to spend the type of money it would take to make him leave Leicester short of him demanding a transfer? So then I think that gets to the second part of the question.
2: Yeah, and I think that's that's an interesting question. It's something that Carl Anker mentioned earlier on 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 TSS earlier this week. In that the, this is going to be an interesting transfer market mm. where not the big players aren't necessarily going to spend a lot of money. There might be more swaps and exchanges and such. And because I was thinking about the kind of teams that he could go to, and I genuinely think he's so good he could walk into a lot of top teams. He could yep. arguably walk into Real Madrid or somewhere like that. He could you know, I, I could see him. I could see That's playing a at, really good shout, man. That's a really good answer. I mean, he's, the Casemiro might have something to say about that, but I think he could. I could think he could do well at that team. And I was thinking even at Atletico Madrid, mm-hmm. it could be like that Thomas yep. Partey replacement also. Although I don't know who does that now. Is it koke Kind of does that now. I don't know. I'm not sure if they've got a direct replacement. So I, I would. I, don't I would, think they I would, do because I think they didn't plan on him leaving. <laughs> so that's right. another good so shout. It's can. like, yeah, maybe they go that route. I'd say he could walk in there. I'd say. Manchester City is another team. Yep. You know, he's so strong at tackling, so strong at interceptions. He could do that Pep Guardiola thing. I think he, uh, you know, maybe not as strong a ball carrier as maybe some other defensive midfielders we could talk about. But I think the way he does it, I think it'd be very good. And we've actually seen him uh, linked with Chelsea in the last yep. few days after having scored against them and help beat them and apparently Chelsea haven't had enough of poaching Leicester defensive <laughs> midfielders because they want another one that's fine but I don't think they need any more players don't go to Chelsea please Wilf don't do no. that um but to, to, yeah to answer the question I think it depends on his ambition and I yep. think it depends on who's got the money to, to 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 pipe up for him at the moment because he could go to most teams I think he's very he's he's well rated but he's still underrated if that makes sense yeah it, it totally does and is a great description for him
1: because to your point like 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 real madrid is not one i would have considered but casemiro i think if 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 they were like 4000 minutes he could have played he's played like 3990 of them like he's played so many minutes that i think he could use somebody to spell him or like compete with him, or maybe they play alongside each other. That's a really great shout. Again, it goes back to the money aspect. You're absolutely right. And I, I don't disagree with anything else you've said. I had Man City. I had Chelsea. I had even Man United. He's He is probably an upgrade yeah. on Fred or McTominay, mm-hmm. and he does give you... A lot more steel, but a lot more like defensive, like consistent defensive work, but then can still get involved in the attack and link up play. I think he makes a lot of teams better. It is just at the end of the day, if he moves, what would suit him and his abilities? I think there's lots of teams that would and would like he would look very good in right away. It just comes down to who's going to shell out the money that's needed to make it happen or who's going to give up three players in a swap deal to make it happen uh yeah. and yeah i think that's the answer is whoever's willing to spend that money to make leicester happy that's where he goes
2: yeah and he is 24 he's probably in his prime right now so it'll be interesting to see how far he can go with this leicester team but i i think it'd be perfectly understandable if someone swooped to use tabloid uh language
1: <laughs> they're always swooping they're always
2: flying so swooping, in. So two swooping. more questions uh do you want to ask this one I would love to. Nathan Chile. thank you very much for your question. Would you guys ever play daily fantasy for soccer? We're talking DraftKings Mm. and FanDuel, that kind of jazz. It's been quite fun for me throughout the pandemic, says Nathan, but scoring is still a bit weird. Also, fantasy sports are a big part of American sports culture, but it's hard to quantify actions in a match outside of goals and assists. Do you think this has hampered soccer from catching on faster in America? Hmm, what say you, Taylor? I'll, I'm
1: gonna answer the last part of that one in a little bit because I gotta think about that a bit more. Because my initial answer was no, and now I like I kind of see where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. I will be honest and say I, I I don't really play fantasy anything. I I've always had that. I've always been that person who starts a fantasy team, pretty into it for the first like three weeks, and then slowly forgets about it, and then hasn't changed my lineup in like since match week four or match week five. So. The idea of daily stuff I know gets around that a little bit, but it also requires me to be on top of everything and aware of everything that's happening. So uh, I don't really see the appeal of it so much. It also feels like one of those things that is basically gambling, but they're just not calling it gambling, like freemium gaming sort of thing with all yeah. the microtransactions, and I think I'm a little wary of it on that front. But I get the idea that if you're trying to bring in a mainstream audience who might not be have the background in soccer or might be as interested in it just naturally gambling is a big thing that like if you I'm not I'm not like breaking new ground here but it is the case that like the times that I have gambled on a game that I did not care about I instantly cared about that game and there probably is something to be said for if you have money on the line skin in the game you care about the team or you've said there's going to be two goals you're going to be excited to see who's the most likely to score those goals and does it actually happen and if it does you're going to be excited so I can see how Like it would help. And then how soccer being sort of difficult to compartmentalize into these different specific things that you can then gamble on maybe makes it harder for that to happen. But that's a lot of maybes and conditionals. Ryan, do you have any more concrete of an answer?
2: Yeah, I think I do. So Nathan's first part of his question is, would you guys ever play Daily Fantasy for soccer on Mm -hmm. DraftKings and FanDuel? And my answer to that is uh, yes. And thank you, Nathan, for watching the many years worth of videos I've made for DraftKings and FanDuel in which I have acted as an expert and uh, tried to uh, encourage you to make certain picks in your team week in, week out. I'm just being silly there, Nathan. But I have, I've, I've kind of been a, I'm air-quoting fantasy expert for some time. I've made a lot of fantasy videos for both MLS and for, for, for the Premier League as well and made, uh, and done some work for both of those two companies as well. And I do actually genuinely like the concept of of DFS. We call it DFS if you're an ITK, by the way. Okay, okay, okay. Um, So, yeah, (laughs) um, I I like regular fantasy as well, and I I play, I I, I go hard on that as well, and I'd like to think I'm reasonably successful at it as well, not to toot my own horn, but I I really like the the DraftKings and the FanDuel kind of model because I think it translates reasonably well from what Americans are used to from other sports, Um, and it's big business, obviously, out here as well. And I like the salary cap contest that you can play in. And in terms of the metrics, I think they've actually got it quite well figured out because uh, if you're not aware, you get you get points, not just for goals and assists and sort of a few other minor things as you would in normal fantasy, but you get uh, point rankings for crosses and for shots and for fouls drawn and for tackles won and for clean sheets, all these kind of things. There's lots of different metrics. You can argue what weighting they should have, but I quite like the way it's done, mm-hmm. I would say. And I I think I wouldn't agree that it's hard to quantify, in a match outside of goals and assists because they are quantified in those ways. And I think it does, you know, you look at um, Jamie Vardy got 50.5 points this weekend and it's not just necessarily because he scored, it's because of his overall contribution on the field, which fantasy game doesn't necessarily reflect the straight fantasy game. So I like that aspect of it.
1: Um, That's really interesting. Like, obviously I'm approaching this from a position of ignorance because I'm just not as schooled in it. I don't utilize it. So that's really interesting to hear and it's also I feel like well sorry I, i'm stepping on your point but yeah that's a, that's a very interesting point i hadn't really thought about
2: yeah and i'm not and, and to answer the second part of the question or to give my opinion on it whether it's hampered soccer from catching on um in america as in the lack la- less the lack of stats i'd say no and i think the americanization of soccer certainly Americanization of premier league coverage might have caught up with uh, 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 might have um Close that gap a little bit. I'm talking mm. about things like XG and sort of things like that. We didn't really consider as much, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. I think there are ways of quantifying the action outside of goals. And system. I know that American sports are very stat led and there still are stats to be had. But also I think there's a beauty in the simplicity, obviously, mm. of, of, of soccer as well. So and I don't think the lack of stats necessarily um, hampers it in any way. Uh, there'll be other yeah. things that hamper it, mainly financial things. <laughs> I, I I think like this kind of connects,
1: but I think that like the biggest impediment to soccer, like becoming the dominant sport in the United States, and it's obviously grown leaps and bounds in even the last 10 years or 20 years. I think it just remains people not liking soccer. And I don't like like I, maybe that sounds silly, but it is the case. that Like I know people who just don't like soccer. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter how you pitch it. It's just like, oh, it's stupid. There's no scoring. Why can't you use your hands? All those kind of generic arguments. But it's always really interesting to me, like, I've had this experience with basketball, which I don't really have a background in and don't know that much about, with lacrosse, with rugby, with with NASCAR even, like... If you're watching the thing with a person who knows it and cares about it and explains the nuances of everything of like this is what like drafting is and this is how you have to do this and this is why you have teammates in like NASCAR, for example. It does – I'm not a NASCAR fan, but it does make it more interesting when you watch it with a person who can explain stuff and you kind of approach it with an open mind. And I just think a big part of soccer is people tend to – like the people who I know who don't like it do not like it, and there's not a real reason for it other than, you know, communist kickball and jokes like that. And I think, yeah. to your point, Ryan, like, like so it's easy to be like, oh, it's just goals, like, I don't know, it's, it's silly. And really, the statistics do bridge that gap a little bit. And if you can approach it from that level and that perspective, it probably does help you understand it more. And if you're watching with people who care, and, like, more people, more and more people seem to care and have the jerseys and supporting the team, I think that does continue to grow the game. So there is probably... A role for Daily Fantasy in expanding soccer coverage in this country, um, as a, as evidenced by Ryan doing videos
2: and, and and promoting it for the last several years. Yeah, uh, and when you talk about those people out, you speak to who don't like soccer. Mm-hmm. I I regard that as be the reasons for that being cultural and economic because i believe those people you're talking to are are probably likely still sports fans Mm -hmm. and if they were to say have been born in europe they would have grown up liking soccer because that's the thing you like there Mm -hmm. are different forces over here economic forces that make the other sports more popular and have done historically And you know, there's you know, if you if you're a kid and you're really good, you're a really good athlete, and you're 17 or something, you're going to try and go into a sport in this country that will pay you lots of money, perhaps Mm -hmm. not one that doesn't pay you as much uh, in soccer at this stage. And I think you know what what hampers soccer is to a large degree and i'm sounding cynical but it is the fact that it's less monetizable as other sports out mm-hmm. here because you go 45 minutes without a break because i you mean, someone... we try
1: to solve it with questions or with uh, commercials on half of the screen ryan yeah. you said no we're trying to commercialize
2: here i'm pushing back on the growth of soccer you're quite right <laughs> but um i think that's a genuine reason that most u.s sports are designed to have a break every few minutes and it's very uh yeah. monetizable whereas soccer is less so in its in its purest form so uh that that'll be more of a hampering of growth than any other uh, uh thing in my opinion yeah All right, I consider that answered. We have one last question. Uh, Daniel
1: Gendin, Gendin, uh, one of my New Year resolutions is to increase my support for women's soccer and purchase some more merch. Where should I be making my purchases to ensure the highest percentage of my money is going into the women's program? In addition, are there any independent small businesses that create cool U.S. Women's National Team stuff, anything from art jerseys or anything else like that that deserve a look or some support?
2: So this question, I started off looking at things like merch and stuff mm. and where, where support could be done. And there's, there are certainly some avenues, Taylor. And for example, I I, uh, I got on a wormhole last night and started looking on Etsy and some of the uh, individual people on Etsy that you could support for USWNT oh stuff. Uh, the, my favorite item I found was the greatest UNW, USWNT plays mug. There is uh, a mug which details uh, Roosevelt's run from the World Cup final for the second goal. And it's got like the heat, not the heat map, but like the, the, the direction map showing where, where she ran for that goal. That's very cool. That's 20 bucks on Etsy if you want to find it. But um, I, I think my greater point here is that it's not just merch that you can right. do to support, the US to, uh, to, to support women's soccer in mm-hmm. this country. You, know, you can support it by streaming the games. You can support it by, more importantly, so by buying local. By supporting your local team, by using your team's website store to get stuff. Get season tickets. When you can, be there. That's the Mm -hmm. best
1: way you can do it. Absolutely. And I think with that, yeah, buy buy a jersey for your team, (laughs) like for your local team. If you're putting money in their coffers, you're putting money in their coffers. From from their website too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well said. Um, And then I think uh, we've we've said this before, but I think it's worth repeating, like, supporting the sponsors of the league like and telling them why you're doing it if you tell Budweiser like I'm not normally a a Budweiser drinker but I bought a case of Budweiser because you all supported NWSL I think if you're telling people hey your actions are having an impact on me being willing to use your product it makes that company maybe more likely to continue to do it or maybe makes other companies more likely to do it as well and that does directly benefit the league especially given that they've uh, cut that connection with U.S. soccer so Supporting U.S. soccer necessarily doesn't mean you're supporting NWSL or those local teams. I think supporting the sponsors of those teams uh, on a local level, supporting the sponsors of the league on a larger level, and letting them know you're doing it, also a big part.
2: I will say I I agree with that entirely, but my caveat is don't lower the quality of your life by buying a case of Budweiser. Buy a different Anheuser-Busch brand. Get some Golden Road or something. Water some plants with it. It's fine. (laughs) <laughs> um, I don't know if it's fine. That's
1: a science experiment for somebody. Uh, in terms of like smaller things, like, like Ryan uh, checked out Etsy. I think there's lots of different uh, individual vendors that can be found. I would say uh, former sponsor Talisman Caps has some nice women's soccer hats. If you're going that route, they are not women's soccer centric. The one, like the one thing that I kept going back to, they were on uh, Grant Wall's podcast recently. The Twitter account Soccer Girl Problems is oh, yeah. always hilarious, but also does a good job of. Showcasing all women's soccer, but sometimes there's good products on there as well. So maybe following them on Twitter, uh, seeing what they talk about, what they might be promoting, also worth uh, keeping an eye on. Good stuff. I concur. There we are. All right. <laughs> I, I mean, I think I think more could certainly be done. Uh, and I and I think Ryan, to your point, when fans are allowed in the stands, it always is the case that. Like like at the movies, buy those tickets, but, you know, buy some sodas, buy some popcorn, buy yeah. the things that are going to fund that team a little bit uh, and help them that way. Definitely uh, appreciated and useful for sure. And then I we think- stop losing all of our best players to England. I don't
2: like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's been a thing, hasn't it? Um but I like- yeah, I, I think that, that that's the key answer to Daniel's question there. It's uh, it's it's the buying local, it's the supporting your local team. It's doing things that puts the most money directly into their pockets and that's going through their channels and um yeah, sh- showing up when when possible. So that, that's, that that'll be my advice.
1: All right, I think we have answered Lots of questions, pretty successfully, and we even talked about non-dairy milk. What more do you need in a podcast? Uh, Ryan Bailey, anything else you'd like to discuss before we call it a day?
2: One more question, Tay-Tay. I've known you a long time, and I've only ever seen you wear black sweaters. Are you like a Steve Jobs thing where you just wear black sweaters? (laughs) Uh, I like
1: long sleeve. Uh, I tend to wear anything long sleeve. I think, uh, yeah, I've got like five or six black long sleeve. It has... But I think I've noticed that in all my photos uh, with our, with our daughter over the last 2 months it's usually uh, black shirts, black pants, uh, white shoes is the the vibe normally. Even the photos from like our live shows I think that tends to be yeah. what I wear. Yeah.
2: That's what I've, I've noticed f- when I've met you've been wearing that when I when when we when we do these you tend to be wearing that. And I'm I I'm with you on team long sleeves, but I always like you are right now, roll up. And when I put a long sleeve collared shirt on, I always mm-hmm. fold the col- fold them over. It's like I'm working harder. It's an it's an illusion. <laughs> I'm now putting on my Ford Madison jersey so I can wear white and pink. Is that Oh, better? there we go. Right? Like oh, that that's more? a that is a beautiful jersey. Ford Madison doing a wonderful job there. <laughs> I I have my, my, my
1: multi stacks of jerseys right next to me as we record. I could have thrown on the Ottoman Empire, uh, one that I have. I like that one a lot. The old Galatasaray kit, if I need to. Those have some color. I think my, the, you're right that my wardrobe is pretty monochromatic except for my jerseys, which are all very, very
2: bright and colorful. That's right. Well, you've got to go off and introduce the latest, uh, iPhone in the keynote, so I'll let you go.
1: <laughs> Don't compare me to him, to that headphone jack stealing jerk All right. (laughs) on that note (laughs) Ryan Bailey thank you very much for taking the time to answer all of the many listener questions that we've answered today and thank you Taylor it's always a pleasure never a chore listeners thank you all very much for listening Uh, we will be back next week to answer more questions to do some weekend reviewing but you can obviously look forward to Allocation Disorder tomorrow but for now that's all from us we will talk to you soon